ventilator-associated pneumonia is a feared and serious condition that affects up to 25% of critically ill patients. The attendant mortality in patients with ventilator-associated pneumonia approaches 50% in some studies. Early diagnosis and management are therefore essential. Associate Professor Robert Boots is the Deputy Director of the Adult Intensive Care Unit at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital in Australia. With qualifications in both respiratory medicine and intensive care and a PhD in the prevention of VAP, he is ideally placed to discuss this important ICU complication. Uh, welcome, Rob, to the podcast. Thank you. Rob, I'd just like to start with a clinical example. I've got a 60-year-old man ventilated for 10 days with severe acute pancreatitis, and he develops purulent secretions, a new fever, and appears to have worsening infiltrates on his chest X-ray. Is it for reasonable for me to treat him as having ventilator-associated pneumonia? Uh, you would probably want a little bit more information than that, um, since the parallels and the uh, amount of secretions don't help you very much, uh, and given the setting that he's got pancreatitis, um, he could have pneumonia or he could have ARDS or all manner of many other diagnoses in relationship to pancreatitis, so at least you'd want to have an organism in an endotracheal aspirate, which certainly in Australia would appear to be the most common uh, way of diagnosing it. And then it depends how sick he is and what your margin of error is. So if your gas exchange is going off, then I think most people um, locally would tend to treat it as ventilator-associated pneumonia if the gram stain showed that there were organisms and that the sputum was in fact purulent as opposed to appearing purulent. Given that the diagnosis is somewhat difficult and delayed antibiotics have been associated with harm, one approach would be to empirically treat everybody. Is there harm associated with this? Is there a reason we shouldn't just treat everybody with this sort of clinical picture? Well, I suppose you've got the, the issue of antibiotic stewardship and it depends what else you're doing in your unit. So some units, and the information is still remains exceedingly scant in the literature in relationship to surveillance culture, so that you've got a bit of an idea of what bugs are around. Certainly respiratory surveillance culturing is no use for the prediction of bacteremia and, and some work published out of RBWH recently has attested to that. But a lot of the studies with surveillance cultures from a respiratory point of view have been exceedingly poorly done. Uh, work that we did um, some time ago using low volume um, non-directed BAL. And in fact, because it's low volume, it's probably really a bronchial washing, um, really did show that um, if you had an organism uh, isolated uh, within uh, 48 hours of the onset of what you think is ventilator-associated pneumonia, that has a very good prediction rate, around about 85% uh, prediction rate for the bug likely causing pneumonia, if infected indeed is. Uh, the um, uh, problem that you've got, though, is that 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 paper also showed that the bug-causing pneumonia may not appear on surveillance cultures till the day that you actually develop pneumonia. So, in fact, the causative organism can get there exceedingly quickly, and so it's still important to take off a, a you know a definitive microbiological specimen at the time of pneumonia rather than just. Rel 
relying on what you got, you know, two days ago and treating that because that may not be the causative organism. So it seems that some of our strategy at least is uh, avoiding inappropriate antibiotics and there's been a number of, uh, of attempts to uh, improve the diagnostic specificity and I was just wondering where we were in, uh, in terms of those deeper sampling and, and what the value of, uh, of those sampling techniques was. For example, tracheobronchial samples, as you mentioned, compared with blind or, or bronchoscopic-derived samples. Yeah, uh, my take on all of that is that it remains exceedingly confused. If you read work of Bonton or Fagon or Shastri, um, they would argue very, very strongly um, in favour of invasive uh, specimens. But uh, quite some time ago, Niederman published uh, an editorial which was back-to-back -back with an editorial with uh, Fagon in uh, Critical Care Medicine. And in fact, those two very eminent um, specialists in respiratory care uh, had absolutely opposed opinions as to what should be done. Now, when you dig back into the literature of where did the quantitative cultures come from, um, they actually came from... Um, uh, really autopsy specimens and, um, they, and uh, animal specimens of what is the bacterial load required to cause a pneumonia in tissue. And then what you actually get in your BAL is a function of um, um, extrapolating that back by the dilution factor of whatever your bronchoalveolar varge is. So it certainly will always correlate, but it's just a little step removed from the tissue burden of bacteria that is usually associated with, you know, histological pneumonia. And that's the problem, um, that it's as only good as the extrapolation is. It's only as good as the bronchoalveolar lavages. We know that intensivists generally are not formally trained in doing a high-quality BAL. Uh, very rarely are the BALs, even in the literature, looked at well for the quality of the specimen, which is looking at epithelial cell contamination. It's uncommon in ICU practice to do a discard volume to get rid of the bronchitic element. And therefore, um, I've tended, and what Australia tends to do in the survey work done by the CTG, which is a bit old now, but about 10 years ago, was that the bronchoscope and quantitative cultures, which are labour-intensive and expensive to do, are really only done in immunocompromised patients. But otherwise, it's a clinical syndrome in Australia and New Zealand with uh, an appropriate endotracheal aspirate specimen. The difficulty is that ETAs are often done at the time, and therefore you don't really get a lot of warning that this is uh, what the bug is likely to be until your specimens are back. So I think that literature, whether you're talking about protective brush specimens or whether you're talking about uh, BALs or whether you're talking about mini BALs, of course they will correlate with um, the pneumonia. But it's interesting that um, work done some time ago by Arcourt uh, is very interesting in relationship to the, the nasty organisms that cause pneumonia, and particularly Pseudomonas. And what Arcourt and that group showed was that if you have a Pseudomonas uh, VAP 
and you treat with antibiotics, you don't actually change the the density or the bacterial load of Pseudomonas in the airway, despite clinical resolution of the infection. And, you know, that's fairly similar to what you see in patients with cystic fibrosis. So this, this idea for, you know, the early onset organisms such as maybe uh, staph, less so for MRSA, but certainly uh, uh, um, flu sensitive staph or methicillin-sensitive staph, I should say, um, for haemophilus influenza, all of those organisms that come on quite early, then you see a rise of the bacterial counts and then you see a fall of the bacterial counts with treatment. When you've got some of the really nasty organisms that hang around for a while, and I'm talking there like Stenotrophomonas, uh, Pseudomonas, Acinetobacter, MRSA, the bacterial density in the lung doesn't seem to change very much whether you um, give antibiotics to treat the infection and the infection gets better, but the bacterial density you get doesn't change very much, and that's quite surprising. And in fact, you see that they're discharged to still carriers and will get very, very high concentrations of those organisms on quantitative culture, uh, but they clinically don't have pneumonia. So when you put all of that together, you know, it is very confusing using uh, deep invasive cultures. But if you're looking for fastidious organisms, if you're looking for organisms which may be overgrown by Pseudomonas colonisation or MRSA colonisation, then getting a BAL may be useful simply to dilute the Pseudomonas out. Otherwise, it just totally grows across the culture plate and crowds out what may actually be the organism causing the problem. So I think you, in Australia and New Zealand, we tend to reserve the bronchoscope from, from survey work done for immunocompromised or concerned about fastidious organisms or indeed to exclude pneumonia at all where you think you may be dealing with uh, you know an interstitial lung disease or something like that uh, otherwise we tend to be a clinical diagnosis based upon an endotracheal aspirate but the quality of the endotracheal aspirate is also a problem because the pneumonia will develop long before you get paralysis sputum and you may get an infiltrate on the chest x-ray long before you get paralysis sputum. So if you wait for paralysis sputum, the diagnosis of pneumonia can be quite late and we've all um, seen that. Um, the, uh, um, the other problem with the infiltrate and doing a BAL is that which segment and it would be uh, uncommon uh, and perhaps unwise to be CTing everybody to be able to get the correct lung segment. You sort of get away with it for, for ventilator-associated pneumonia because almost invariably it's in the dependent lung segments. So when you're using a non-directed catheter or you'll put your BAL uh, and the bronchoscope down to the dependent segments, that's probably where the pneumonia is going to be and usually uh, whether the chest X-ray shows it or not, uh, certainly the bugs are bilateral. And that's why it sort of tends to work. But if you have a true localised infiltrate, it's very difficult to know on the chest X-ray in a ventilated patient whether it's anterior or posterior. We're not using ultrasound to guide a BAL. That's a big commitment to do that, and I haven't seen any studies on that at all. So, therefore, when you put all of that together, the um, you know an invasive specimen 
in the right clinical context probably works as well as a non-invasive specimen, but very sadly, in order to get anything published, you really have to have a decent scoring system, which doesn't really exist for the diagnosis of pneumonia, or you've got to have quantitative cultures. You certainly won't get a VAP study published in in European literature without having quantitative cultures, and that makes it seem like um, they are the um, uh, definitive diagnostic technique where probably they are not. So given the limitations of some of these uh, deeper samples and the, uh, the argument that uh, by taking a tracheal uh, sample that you're essentially finding out uh, or being able to exclude things that uh, your treatment doesn't cover... Is it reasonable to use upper airway sampling uh, in the right clinical context for most patients, do you think? Well, if they're ventilated anyway and you're getting an endotracheal sample, if, if that's what you mean by upper airway sampling yes, as opposed to right. pharyngeal, um, you know, if you put your suction catheter down, uh, you know, that is a lower airway sample and that would be a sputum that you would get on the ward anyway. But after a couple of days in ICU, you run the risk of it being colonised and that's where the problem comes into and you've just got to make a clinical decision whether the, the colonisation is relevant or not. Um, certainly it's not difficult, uh, and they do it in neonates, is to you know, wedge a catheter, a suction catheter, into the lower airway, do a mini lavage. doesn't seem to upset the patients from our research experience of it, you know, toss down 25 mils of saline and suck 25 mils of saline back. And that's often very useful um, when you don't have a lot of sputum in order to get a sample. And certainly early on, they may not have a lot of sputum. So, but uh, just tossing a decent volume of saline down the airway uh, when it's not a wedged catheter may upset the patient a little bit. So that's not a bad technique and it's a cheap technique and, um, you know, at least gives you a reasonable sample as opposed to, um, you know, a very superficial sample which may indeed be air largely. You mentioned the issue of colonisation and there's been a number of uh, markers and other uh, techniques suggested to try and differentiate between infection and colonisation, things like procalcitonin and S-TREM, yep. clinical scores and so on. What's the place yep. of all of these things, do you think? I don't think they have any place at all. Now, there's actually a very good uh, review paper on this published this year in Heart and Lung where they reviewed... Uh, um, um, uh, soluble trigger uh, release for myeloid cells and procalcitonin and, and the other one which is still very commonly done is CRP. Um, the bottom line is that all of those, in, in all of those measures, there's increasing evidence that they can be elevated in non-infective causes of SIRS. Um, certainly there are studies of ventilator associated uh, pneumonia prediction uh, with all of those um, uh, type of biological markers, and it depends. They vary enormously with the assay which is being used. They vary enormously with the diagnostic um, process for the ventilator-associated pneumonia, and therefore none of them really bear up to have um, greater sensitivity or specificity than, a, um, than doing a quantitative BAL, really, for the diagnosis, which is never... A hundred percent for either sensitivity or specificity, anyway. So they add a lot of money, 
Um, they don't help you make the diagnosis very much, and that was the take-out of this systematic review, which I think was done quite well. And, um, and therefore, certainly we don't tend to use them. The other place where these things have been done, particularly procalcitonin, is in when do you stop the antibiotics for venlafaxine-associated pneumonia. And we know from previous work that you can get away with an eight-day course versus a 14-day course. And that's what most of these studies are about, stopping antibiotics where the usual empiric course of antibiotics overseas still seems in many centres to be around 14 days. Now, in Australia, we've got the problem that the standard course of antibiotics for many, many years now has been um, five days with not a lot of evidence to support that when it started. And my understanding is that that started due to a change in the PB, uh, in the pharmaceutical benefit scheme probably about 15 years ago where five days became the standard course of antibiotic. And that's what most units seem to do if the patient's getting better, five days and stop. There aren't any studies with procalcitonin versus five days and stop. And so the relevance of any of those biological markers in the Australian-New Zealand environment is very, very unclear. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, following with repeated C-reactive protein is expensive. But if the patient's getting better, why do you need a C-reactive protein to tell you the patient's getting better? If the fever's coming down, the infiltrates are getting better, why would you bother? Because it adds a reasonable amount of money to the cost of running your ICU. And I do know that some ICUs do these quite repeatedly, but they probably don't add very much in terms of clinical assessment. And when they're likely to be most beneficial is when you are clinically confused. And then they may add to the depth of your decision-making. But to do them routinely, is it, the literature would not support doing them routinely at the moment, certainly for VAP. One of the other confusing areas, Rob, is the um, when a, uh, a patient develops a syndrome like this on antibiotics. Are there any? Uh, I, I would assume that that affects the sensitivity of the testing in some way. Yep. Um, are yep. there any practical tips on how to overcome this? Uh, no, um, there, there are not. Um, uh, apart from getting another specimen. Um, there isn't any tips at all for dealing with a VAP syndrome while already on antibiotics. But presumably, if they're developing it, whatever is causing it, if it is a pneumonia, it should be resistant to the antibiotic that you're on um, or you're dealing with a different process affecting the lung, such as atelectasis or an aspiration or something like that, which is non-infective. Rob, can I turn your attention to some of the preventative strategies now? As um, many of our listeners would appreciate, the pathology of VAP is strongly associated with pharyngeal colonisation and microaspiration. What are the strategies that we've got in to, to be able to combat this? Well, the, there's probably a little bit more to it than just pharyngeal colonisation and uh, microaspiration. And, and, um, so the, the, there are generally... Um, four major approaches to uh, prevention of ventilator-associated pneumonia. One group is the uh, physical therapies. The next group is how you manage the equipment in the ICU. The third uh, grouping of things relate to infection control regimes. And then there's a whole lot of other 
uh, bits and bobs related to uh, patient therapy, which may or may not be helpful. Now, if we sort of look at um, uh, the issue that you raised of colonisation, the biggest cause of colonisation is a bit of plastic in your windpipe. And still the way to prevent pneumonia is to get the plastic out of the windpipe as early as possible. Now, um, certainly an, oro, um, an orogastric tube rather than a nasogastric tube um, has had some evidence for it in the past of uh, limiting fat. The um, way that you manage the oropharynx, probably the best evidence is around for using a 2% chlorhexidine uh, mouthwash, uh, best defined in the cardiac surgical patients. Um, uh, appropriate, um, most of us would use uh, disposable ventilation circuits now, but certainly appropriate sterilisation of the respiratory equipment um, uh, is is very important, but seems to be less of an issue now than it was, say, uh, 15, 20 years ago. Lots and lots and lots and lots of literature on systemic decontamination. Uh, I think the reason why that it hasn't come into being is that in an overall patient group, it becomes a relatively expensive therapy to provide if you're giving the full intravenous as well as topical routines. Um, there still remains, even though recent evidence would argue against it, of the risk of uh, uh, microbial resistance developing with systemic uh, uh, selective decontamination, but there's certainly no argument that that approach will decrease ventilation-associated pneumonia. There's been some forgotten articles, I think, in the past that certainly for um, Haemophilus influenzae, Moraxella cateralis, uh, are those organisms most likely to cause early onset uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia after the first um, couple of days. Uh, one shot of keftriaxone at around the time of intubation was shown to enormously reduce uh, the risk of those developing. And if it's only one shot, it doesn't uh, increase your risk of uh, subsequent contamination. In terms of your risk of aspiration, uh, the literature is certainly there for semi-recumbent positioning. The magic uh, uh, level is 45 degrees. It is very rare to see a patient in an ICU actually at 45 degrees, and we know that the angle of the head of the bed doesn't predict the actual angle the patient is at. But nobody has reported that if you do that to um, older patients in particular, you have a significant problem with pain over the uh, lumbosacral joint area because sitting up at 45 degrees all day in bed causes significant problems um, with back pain. There's good evidence against, uh, about supraglottic suctioning and that's supported by many published guidelines and, and meta-analysis. Again, the early work suggested that supraglottic suctioning uh, decreased early onset pneumonia and probably didn't reduce it any more than just giving them a, a, a shot of keftriaxone. Uh, but there are some other literature that, that it may be helpful in the prevention of, um, of um, later onset fat. Closed system suctioning, yeah, although recommended, doesn't have very good evidence for the prevention of that. Depends on which paper you read, but at least you're not aerosolising bugs all around the uh, unit. Uh, more recently, there has been um, uh, 
an emphasis on endotracheal cuff pressures and measuring those pressures uh, regularly to make sure of um, uh, um, to limit aspiration as much as possible, and indeed, uh, even more recently, changes to endotracheal cuffs where you may not get the little creases developing in them uh, to allow streaming of secretions um, to the lower airway. But we haven't got good evidence for those special cuffs yet. Uh, keeping the stomach um, from being over-distended, although not proven in randomised control trials, is a very common practice which is done. Other things which are there um, are use of non-invasive ventilation. There is literature there to suggest that NIV, if you can get away with it, or extubating early and providing NIV, so long as the patients are able to cough, I would think, um, uh, getting the endotracheal tube out early uh, is useful. What does increase your evaporate though is accidental extubation and this remains very confusing depending upon uh, what review article you're reading. Um, if the patient extubates themselves then certainly there is a high risk of aspiration and the development of ventilator associated pneumonia with an odds ratio that, that is reportedly up around about five or six. But if it is a prepared elective uh, extubation, where you've turned the feeds off, you've extubated the patient, bad luck didn't work, tube goes back in, uh, then there is no risk of causing ventilator-associated pneumonia in that setting, and that has to be realised that there is a big difference between accidental extubation and the need to re-intubate in a, um, in a, um, a, a set-up extubation. Other things uh, which are important in getting the patient off the vent early uh, are the sedation protocols and the sedation interruptions, and, and those are associated in some studies with a decrease of that because they have a decrease in ventilation time. The lung protection strategies uh, is interesting in that there was an argument early on of using low volume ventilation uh, may cause more atelectasis and therefore the risk of more pneumonia. In fact, it hasn't been seen that there is an increased incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia with a protective ventilation strategy. Presumably, you're not damaging the lung as much and therefore running the risk of infection. Um, in addition to the semi-recumbent position, there are very expensive devices of rotational therapy where you basically lock the patient into one of those um, uh, rotating beds which do decrease the incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia and may be relevant in a spinal unit. Proning the patient with ARDS or ALI is associated with decreased pneumonia. Article, uh, which is not being repeated sadly, coming out of the Royal Melbourne Hospital many years ago, and, I, and, and our friend Jeff Presnell was on that paper, I think definitively showed that regular chest physio in the ICU does increase the incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia and is one of our strong arguments for having a regular physiotherapy presence. Um, in the old days when I started, you used to change your ventilator circuit every two days. 
and the literature that came out, she was uh, early 90s, would suggest that that practice is associated with an increase of ventilator-associated pneumonia simply by breaking the circuit routinely. And so uh, most recommendations now are that you do not change your ventilator circuit until um, unless it is macroscopically soiled. Uh, otherwise, it can stay there until the patient is discharged. Uh, there still remains a great controversy about the use of either hot water or HME humidification. Depends which meta-analysis you read. In some of them, the HMEs come out on top, particularly with late-onset pneumonia. With the way hot water humidification is now run, particularly when you're using closed systems like, you know, Fisher Pikel provide as an example, most commonly used in Australia and New Zealand. Um, it's unclear whether or not the humidification technique makes any difference, and it probably doesn't, if the truth be known. The other things which have been shown to be very helpful are um, regular staff um, educational programs and infection control teams where, you know, you're keeping the concept of ventilator-associated pneumonia high in people's psyche so that um, there's good infection control practices eliminating uh, cross-infection um, between patients. So, um, you know, the, uh, an infection control strategy with ventilator-associated pneumonia needs to be part of your, of your routine ward strategies anyway. So I think they're most of the general things that are in the literature in relationship to, um, to the prevention of uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia. Rob, just one point I'd like to pick up on there was you, you referred to gastrointestinal issues there and there's been some recent... Um, uh, attention paid to acid suppression in uh, in patients and their risk of both community acquired and hospital acquired pneumonia. Yep. So, what are your comments on that? On specific feeding strategies and and even probiotics in VAP prevention? Okay. Uh, probiotics has been shown uh, not to work, uh, and some probiotics may actually increase your risk of developing bacteremias with very very funny bugs. So I think at the moment the probiotic uh, issue is off the agenda um, or certainly needs more studies. Uh, other things in relationship to probiotics or antibiotics is the antibiotic impregnated tubes with uh, silver compounds, unbelievably expensive and more work needs to be done. Stress ulcer prophylaxis, uh, it, the, the ball goes each side of the court uh, as to whether sucrophate or ranitidine cause ventilator-associated pneumonia. And again, it depends who does the meta-analysis. And sometimes sucrophate comes out on top and sometimes ranitidine comes out on top. So I, I've had a great deal of difficulty interpreting that literature because you can find whatever result you like. Um, so uh, stress ulcer prophylaxis is still part of the routine. Most of us don't use sucrophate anymore simply because it blocks our endotracheal tubes. Um, so I, I, the answer there is that I don't think it is known in the present state of the art. In terms of um, uh, limiting large uh, gastric um, uh, returns, the there are very, very few studies on using uh, prokinetic agents, uh, particularly uh, metoclopramide and erythromycin. They're exceedingly small uh, and therefore 
uh, haven't been shown to be a benefit. And the difficulties we know with erythromycin is this usury um, tolerance developing to it over the first couple of days of usage. But there is some work to suggest that a feeding gastrostomy does reduce incidence of VAP quite significantly in, in you know, again, a very small series of patients, as you can expect. So certainly aspiration and feeding do seem to be important, uh, but we do know as well that putting down a... Um, say a nasojejunal tube doesn't really uh, uh, decrease your risk of reflux or, or gastric aspiration uh, and has not been associated with a reduction in ventilator-associated pneumonia rates. So uh, at the moment, um, making sure that you don't get gastric distension uh, is probably the most important aspect of that part of the uh, prevention of ventilator-associated pneumonia. I'd like to just turn quickly to a, uh, a research interest of yours, which is nebulised heparin, and I was wondering if you could explain <laughs> the rationale for that. Uh, yep. Uh, well, as most of you know, the trial is ongoing. Advertising, if you want to join, let me know. Um, there are five sites uh, presently um, uh, agreed to take part. Two sites are active, and we're up to 150 patients enrolled with uh, 800 to go, I think. Anyway, um, the way heparin... Uh, um, is supposed to work um, is that it does have some sputum thinning properties. Uh, so it increases the rheology of sputum. It's also been shown to uh, improve mucociliary clearance, which is the problem of ventilating people. As soon as you ventilate uh, patients, whether you're humidified uh, well or not, the mucociliary escalator is impaired and you get... Um, uh, a degree of inflammation of biopsy in the airway, and and that's supposed to be one of the one of a significant factor in the cause of ventilator-associated pneumonia. The colonisation issue is interesting because we know that colonisation is a big risk factor for patients that are acutely ventilated in the ICU, but we know that in chronically tracheostomised patients and the home ventilated patients they start to become immune to the development of pneumonia um, after they leave the ICU, even though they're chronically instrumented and chronically ventilated, and that if you take uh, uh, swabs of the stoma, they may be heavily colonised. But those patients, are, uh, if you take deep airway sampling, are sterile. So something changes which is not very well defined in terms of the mucociliary escalator or maybe the secretion of IgA or something like that changes so that chronically ventilated patients don't seem to be at a very high risk of the development of pneumonia. It's our acutely ill ICU patients. Now getting back to the heparin story, um, heparin has been used in cystic fibrosis patients uh, and demonstrated to get their pulmonary infections better quicker. Um, it has some mild antibiotic effect that we've demonstrated here against uh, Haemophilus influenzae and Streptomoniae, but it doesn't have any antibacterial effects against um, things like Pseudomonas cerasinetobacter. We do know that topically um, uh, it is anti-inflammatory and it's been used as an anti-inflammatory agent topically in a whole range of scenarios, including, believe it or not, heparin-soaked dressings in burns. 
uh, the work that's come out of the uh, St Vincent's in Melbourne using really very high doses uh, of nebulised heparin, just a little bit throttled back from where you would start to get effects on your systemic coagulation profile. We know that doing that does decrease ventilation time. Uh, and therefore may uh, have an effect for decreasing the risk of pneumonia simply by getting them off the ventilator quicker. So um, it's been used in burns with both animal and human literature suggests that uh, the burns get better, airway burns get better quicker, but we don't have good evidence in those groups about rates of airway colonisation. So the, uh, there is a range of doses that are around um, uh, and the average dose would seem to be about 5,000 units nebulised four times a day. That does not cause uh, systemic anticoagulation because of the heparinase within the lung breaks it all down that doesn't get across. So it'll be very interesting to see the uh, results of the inhaled heparin study for ventilator associated pneumonia and, and a secondary endpoint of that because, excuse me, most of the patients that are suitable to go into that trial need to be able to have heparin within the first uh, 24 hours of being ventilated in the ICU, so that excludes a, a reasonable number of traumas and things like that, at least for the first 24 hours. But there's a significant enrolment of pneumonia patients, and the the uh, study is actually collecting data on whether or not their pneumonia gets better quicker, maybe by the anti-inflammatory effect of the uh, heparin. Who knows? So it's a matter of watch this space, and it's an extrapolation from use of inhaled heparin in other sources. Do you need to have a special nebulizer to do it? Not defined. If you think about trying to use heparin uh, for as an anti-alveolar inflammatory um, um, treatment, then you've got to get it down to the alveoli, which makes a lot of sense. And so you're going to be trapped into using an ultrasonic nebulizer. But if you're trying to use it for airway infection, which is what pneumonia is, it starts in the airways um, and, and then goes to the alveoli, then it's very reasonable to be using jet nebulisation uh, with deposition into uh, the large and the medium-sized airways as a preventive strategy for ventilator-associated pneumonia and improving sputum because you're not targeting trying to treat airway inflammation. The difficulty we've got is the literature about the value of using nebulizers and the efficiency of using nebulizers on ventilators still remains um, very, very poor indeed. And I know that there is an interest uh, with several of my colleagues in Brisbane at looking at inhaled antibiotics and, and other things inhaled much, much more closely because the, the literature largely comes out of the 1980s uh, and 1990s. And uh, it's very, very poor in terms of the types of things that we're now starting to think about that we'd like to nebulise therapeutically. Finally, Robert, it'd be remiss of me not to raise the issue of empiric therapy and obviously this is heavily guided by uh, uh, individual unit antibiograms and, and so on and probably a discussion in its own right. But do you have any broad brushstrokes advice on the on empiric therapy for VAP? Uh, look, I, I think you've hit the key point. What is the unit's antibiogram? Um, 
you know, so there's no point in, you know, an RBH or a, or a Alfred Hospital recommendation or even a, a or even a, uh, a medical therapeutics uh, recommendation for the treatment of VAP in your unit. We know that if it's in the first couple of days, it's going to be pretty straightforward. It's going to be Haemophilus um, uh, pneumococcus, Moraxella, uh, those types of things. So, you know, giving keftriaxone to those is fine. Um, but once you're down the line and you're starting to get gram-negative and depending upon what your risk in your unit of MRSA is, that determines what you are likely to prescribe. So the antibiogram's most important. We still locally uh, do surveillance cultures. Uh, we're quite committed to surveillance cultures and we're, we're uh, relatively happy that the literature that we've published does actually support, that it gives you a reasonable idea if you've had an endotracheal aspirate off within a couple of days before you develop a clinical pneumonia, uh, at least you know, have information on what bug is in the airway or what bug has been in the airway and what its sensitivities are. So it does give you a little bit of a head start. Of, um, so we would advocate doing surveillance cultures, but... Uh, but uh, we're mindful of the fact that the literature in that area remains exceedingly poorly done and a lot more larger trials need to be done at the value of it. Rob, thank you very much for that extraordinary review of uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia. Thank you very much for your time. That's all right. Thanks, Todd. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.